This is a Federal News Network podcast. The IRS singled out its paper workload as one of its biggest setbacks this filing season. In response, the National Taxpayer Advocate recently issued a directive for the IRS to use scanning technology. Options include having tax preparers use 2D barcodes and optical character recognition. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with National Taxpayer Advocate Aaron Collins. When you think about the difference between electronic and the paper returns, I mean, basically the difference is night and day. If it's an electronic return, it literally goes through the system, assuming there's no errors, without an employee in essence touching it. All of the filters are done through programming, and it comes out the other side. Again, assuming no problems, it'll automatically generate the refund, it'll instruct it to be paid, and then it goes into the system. So very little human interaction or employee interaction on an electronic filed return. If it's a paper return, you know, when you think about it, you know, envision the trucks coming up to the dock. And so humans have to go out. The employees have to go out. They bring all of those returns into the building. They first have to sort them. Then they have to, um, you know, in essence, do everything from opening the envelope. If there's a check in it, they remove the check. They remove the staples. They have to hand stamp with the date and all the information on the return. And then it gets batched into bundles. Those batches go on to the next group, which is called code and editing. Then you have employees review the return. They try and see if there's any illegible markings or if taxpayers have done something wrong. And they literally, with a red pen, code on it so that when it goes to the next group, which does transcription, they enter in line by line, number by number into the system. Then it goes over to what they call the error resolution group to determine if there are any inconsistencies or problems. All of that is by different employees. The entire process is like a human supply chain in order to get it to come out the other end. And so at the other end, either at that point, they'll instruct payment to be made, or if there's a problem or error, they'll send a notice out to the taxpayer to inform them what the challenge is. So needless to say, the complexities of a paper return and the time considered is substantially more than running it through the system if it's an electronic filed return. Not just more complicated, but it seems also more room for error, it seems. Just a lot of humans in the loop and a lot of opportunities for mistaking a one for a seven or something like that. Yeah, no, the the error rate on um, these returns is in the low 20%. And, you know, again, if you're the recipient of that error, it potentially could change your income. It could change tax due. And so, you know, those are challenges. We need to get that error ratio closer to zero. It's interesting that this is being discussed at length now, the barcodes, I mean, because this is not a new idea, it seems. It seems like this has been on the table for quite some time, and it seems like the IRS has had an evolution or coming around to the idea over the years. Can you give me a little bit of a synopsis of how that evolution has played out? Yeah, it's not that we're so brilliant today making this recommendation. In fact, Taz has been making this recommendation, I think, close to 20 years. All of us, we go to a store, a grocery store, a pharmacy, a, a retail store. They all have barcoding. It would ease the process. There are some challenges, though, with the 2D barcoding. It has to be on a return that is generated either by a third-party software or IRS software. And when you look at the percentage of paper returns that are filed using software, it's around 50-60%. So it wouldn't cover 100% of the returns. It would only cover those that were 
prepared on those returns that could be barcoded. The other challenge is if a taxpayer marks up that return, again, you're going to have to go back to the process where it's going to have to go through sort of the employee's review, coded editing, and transcribing because they've altered the document. So it's not a perfect solution, but had the IRS had that in place at least the last two years, it would have made a tremendous difference on the backlog. Whereas OCR, the optical character recognition, that could probably do 100% of the returns. But again, the error ratio is a little bit higher. It's probably in the mid to high teens because it gets back to handwriting. As you said, a one and a seven could look very similar depending on who wrote it. So there's a challenge with the optical character recognition. Personally, I'm not an IT person. I don't care what software, what programming, whatever they use. I just want them to automate the process. How do we make this so going forward, we do not end up in a situation that we have these delays and backlogs that we have for the last two, three years? It seems like this would also be a force multiplier, it seems, for the IRS workforce. And there's been a lot of talk of, the IRS, you know, badly needing people. We've heard the IRS talk about direct hiring authority and just trying to get as many people in the door, it seems, as, as they're able to hire. How do you see these tools or these technologies enabling employees to do more in perhaps the same amount of time? Yeah, I think it would be a huge benefit if we automate the paper process. And that's not just returns. I'd like to see them automate the correspondence process as well. I'm a big proponent of individuals' online accounts. If you could upload your documents to your own online account and the IRS could see it, again, that would eliminate paper. I think going forward, we need to get in the 21st century as an agency. And paper is difficult because not only do you have to process it, you got to store it. I mean, it causes all sorts of challenges. But at the same time, I don't believe we're in a place now that we can require 100% of our taxpayers to file electronically, because I do see that there's a percentage of our population that are unbanked, the percentage of population that move quite frequently, or don't have the bandwidth or the computer technology, or, you know, even a computer. So we have to be mindful of that. But if we can get those folks who want to electronically file, that would be great. And then we could use this technology and these IRS employees to focus on the remaining paper backlog, or hopefully we'll get rid of that word backlog. We never use it again, Uh, but the paper inventory, trying to get that up to date. Now that we are past tax day, of course, there are people who are going to file extensions and the IRS will be plenty busy throughout the year. Is this now, from a timeline standpoint, a good time for the IRS to tackle these kinds of things now that it's able to catch its breath, so to speak? Well, you know, interesting you say catch your breath. Actually, IRS is currently starting preparing for filing season next year now. So uh, pretty much after the April 15th, or in this case, April 18th date has come and gone, they start early summer getting ready, looking at changes of any particular tax law, improving the system. And they pretty much have a lot of this in place by the fall so they can start testing the new program before they open the new filing season. So if they're going to make these changes, Or if you're going to ask a third-party vendor to do the 2D barcoding, you've got to do it now to give them time to get all of that taken care of before the next filing season starts. National taxpayer advocate Aaron Collins speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity. 
and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.